Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which is a back of house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Apier, and I'm really excited to have our next guest join us, who is taking a short break from fighting the good fight against COVID-19 with our friend Chris Crowley up in Summit County, Amy Preston. Thank you so much for making the time. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Christian. Happy to be here. Well, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor, and I really appreciate it. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you are doing currently? I mean, you're, I just kind of spilled the beans there saying that you're helping Chris Crowley up there in Summit County. But why don't you just give us a little sense of your current situation? So you're right. I am um, working with Chris Crowley. I saw his name in the paper. I live in Summit County, Park City. Um, saw his name in the paper talking about the vaccination clinic that they were starting here. And I was very interested in being a part of that. Instead of sitting at home waiting around for the solution to happen, I wanted to get in and help. So I started um, helping him on site as a volunteer. And a couple of days later, he's like, Aim, can you help me out? I think we, we'd love to hire you. And I've been there a couple months now. Um, it's a great group of people. We're we're doing amazing things um, with the leadership of Chris that has put the venue together structurally, just like the Olympic Games. Um, and so it was an easy transition for me. Um, instead of having a sport on the floor inside, we're doing vaccinations. Everything else is the same. Well, how is it going up there in Summit County? I mean, is the vaccination process running along smoothly? Are people getting the shots in the arms? That is true. Yeah. Um, Chris um, designed the venue fully um, transportation. People are remain in their cars the whole time. So they're in their little bubble and they come in, they drive into a section where a nurse will shoot them up in the arm and they drive out to a recovery area, stay 15 minutes and they're out. Um, we see them twice because we're doing the Moderna vaccine, but um all of our appointments are full every day. So as much vaccination, um, as much as much vaccine as we're getting is the number of people that we're vaccinating. It's it's a really positive thing to see up close. And I understand this is keeping you quite busy. It is. Yeah, it's um, it, it feels a little bit like an Olympic Games is in the fact that. Um, you know, the days go really fast. The clinics open from nine to four. We set up at um, 7 a.m. And some days we're able to shut down the venue by 536. And some days we're there a little later. Um, you know, weather can be a factor because of um, the snow in Park City. So, um, you know, we, we sometimes have 10, 12 hour days. Well, hopefully you don't have to keep that up for too much longer. When does the light at the end of the tunnel finally arrive there in Summit County, do you think? As soon as we get um, everyone here vaccinated, in which I think um, we've opened it up to 16 years and older at this point. So um, we're just seeing people roll through there every day. So as soon as we've, um, we've gotten through the population, then, then we're there. Well, I don't know if you're like a lot of other people I've talked to, but everybody is looking for this to be over so they can go take a nice vacation somewhere. Any holiday plans, travel plans coming up here when this crisis abates? Absolutely. I think um, the last year has been rough for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And um, seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, I think um, 
we're all very anxious to get there. Um, but we just still have to remember and keep in mind that, um, we're not there yet. And there's still a bunch of people out there that are unprotected. Um, I do have some future plans to fly, um, internationally. And so I'm hoping that um, things go as planned and we open up and we can. Well, me too. Me too. I hope that we can travel internationally as well. It's been a long time since I've been on an international flight. I think it was February of last year was my last international trip. And so I'm looking forward to it. Maybe going someplace a little bit warmer. I don't know. That actually takes me to my next funny question for you, which is the marooned on an island question. So assume this crisis is over. We're now traveling. You get to go to a beautiful island. Could be tropical. Maybe not. I don't know. But you get to go to an island and you're marooned there for a period of time. You'll eventually be rescued. On that island, you can only have three things. One meal, one album to listen to and one film to watch. What would those be? I think that was pretty easy. When I looked at that question, I, I thought to myself, okay, what kind of food would I, um, would I want? And instantly sushi, um, came to mind and that became a favorite of mine, um, on our trip to Nagano, Japan to watch the 98 Olympics and do our observations there. Um, so sushi, number one, I'm, I'm there. And when you're on an Island and you got fresh fish, that's an easy thing to, to find. Um, Music, I would say Nora Jones, um, her album, just that smooth jazz, um, come away with me, that song. I mean, I, re I remember being on trips with, with her music, um, and, and she would be my number one artist there. Um, and then the movie, I don't know if this would be a surprise, but to me, the only movie that I think I would watch over and over again is planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> And I, I think I would need a little comedy and laughter. Uh, and Steve Martin was always that for me. And there was just so many situations and so many tender moments in that movie that just caught me in the 80s. And that one sticks with me. I think this is awesome. You've got Sushi, Sushi and Nora Jones, super chill, very relaxed. And then on the flip side, you've got the manic Steve Martin, plane trains and automobiles. I think that's a great mix of, of styles there. So I think you do well on the island. I think you do well. And you'll be catching your own fish and making your own sushi. It's going to be delicious, I'm sure. All right. Well, shall we talk about Salt Lake 2002? I'd love to. All right. Let's dive into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit, Amy, about what you were doing before you joined the organizing committee and just what was your pathway to SLOP? I've been thinking about this a lot in the last few days, and it um, it wasn't the normal pathway to SLOP. Um for me, I was um, very young at the time. I had just come off of um, four years as an athlete at the University of Utah. I was a gymnast there, um, coached by uh, the famous Greg Marston and Megan Marston, who um, created a really amazing team and experience. Um, we won three national championships out of the four years I was there. Um, after I was finished with gymnastics, I wasn't quite sure what my next thing in life would be, but I really enjoyed being a part of sport. So I ended up staying at the university of Utah, working for the Crimson club, which is the fundraising arm of the athletic department and going to school to get my master's degree. And I decided to get that in sports administration. So I spent two years doing that. And as I was graduating, 
the Olympics came along and we won the bid for 2002. Um, it was the ultimate thing for a sports administrator to start working for the Olympics. So I started putting my resume out. And it was lucky for me that Anne Marie Jensen was already working there um, in the sport department. She had been organizing the Utah gymnastics meets for several years. And if anyone knows anything about Utah gymnastics, it's that the meets are a spectacle, an event, and they have a following of 15,000 fans. Uh, they're breaking records of um, people that are wanting to be a part of that program. So she created that environment there at the University of Utah and started running the sport department um, at the Olympic Games. So I put my resume in. She hired me right out of my graduate master's degree at the University of Utah. And I started as a 27-year-old kid. <laughs> um planning the biggest event, biggest sporting event in history. That is just amazing, the trajectory that you got there. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were hired to do there at the Salt Lake 2002 Organizing Committee? At the time, I um, I was the 40th employee hired. Um, and I was hired generally in the sports department. At that point in time, we were planning on a general basis. It was before the Nagano Olympics. And one of my first tasks was putting together a an observation committee that would go out to Nagano and um, bring back any knowledge that we had to organize our own, own Olympics. Um, in the sports department, we had hired a few um, a few people that could were experts in the skiing sports and figure skating and hockey. Um, at the time, we didn't have curling in Utah and there was no one really planning for it. So I recognized that as a whole um, in, in our plan. So I, I basically took that sport and, um, and made sure that it was being planned for. At, at the same rate that everything else was. So really, it really took um, going from the sport of gymnastics and then looking at um, winter sport and ice sports in general, focusing in on curling and saying, okay, what do we need to do to organize this sport so that when we do hire a manager for it, it's ready to be planned. find this super interesting because you come from a sport gymnastics at the University of Utah, where, by the way, you very humbly did not say you're all American there. But hey, anyway, you come from this very established institution, the University of Utah, and gymnastics is a well-oiled machine there when, when you're there, both as an athlete and also as an administrator. And then you come into the organizing committee, which is not very old. You're employee number 40 to organize a sport that nobody in Utah knows about curling. So I want to know a little bit more about this transition coming from something super popular, super established in the state of Utah to something that nobody knows about. Yeah. And it wasn't that I, I tagged myself to do curling. It was that I recognized that curling was the one sport that we weren't, we didn't currently have someone that could initiate the plans. And, um, and so I just made sure, and I just kept lifting it up. I kept learning about it. And, um, we recognized that we didn't have any sports in Utah 
that could uh, that we could use. So we didn't have a curling club in Utah that we could use to then organize the games. Other sports, like you look at um, downhill skiing, they organize downhill skiing events all the time. They had America's opening at Park City Mountain Resort. I mean, there's historical clubs that know what they're doing in all many of the other sports. Curling was one that we didn't even have a club here. So I, I recognized that, started learning about the sport enough to be able to get it to the point where we were organizing it. Learned about a lot about it in Nagano. I mean, it was, I, I'm looking back at my notes and um, the observations I took from that event. And it, it is amazing to me how much um, the transfer of knowledge was was so important here and to to be there and take from the people the sport managers there and the people there they were so willing to to teach and and help us um get a head start in in salt lake so that was that was an amazing learning experience for me and it really started my love for the sport because um it was like like you said it was so different than gymnastics gymnastics is so physical it's um um the girls are just so mentally and physically strong um and the sport takes place at a younger age um i was already past my prime by the time i was 27 but i looked at the sport of curling and the maturity it takes to become an Olympic level curler was so different. It was this combination of the finesse of golf and the, the, the challenge of, you know, chess on ice. It was um, a mental game. And these athletes were, were so completely different from gymnasts, but it was just so interesting to me to learn and the world curling federation, the, um, USA curling, the national governing body for curling. They were also accepting to bring me into the sport and teach me about it so that I could learn how to organize it. So you go through this educational process through your own study and you go and conduct observations, but what was the, what was the process of actually building the team out that would deliver the sport of curling here in the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic games? It was interesting. I, I think that um, as far as um, challenges go, I didn't realize what a big challenge it was at the time because I was like, oh, we don't have a curling club. Let's start a curling club. Let, you know, talk to the Ogden Ice Sheet, um, the community um, in Ogden, the county. There are so many people that just embraced this sport fully. Um, Volunteers came out of the woodwork and I... I organized a couple of meetings out there, had some people come and express interest. And all of a sudden we had a group of volunteers, completely volunteer that um, decided, Oh, let's start a curling club here at the ice sheet, the ice sheet who was, they were already full in hockey and figure skating sports. They carved out a a period of time where they, they um, then painted curling ice sheets on the ice and allowed us to start a club. Then USA Curling came in and um, regularly flew out to Ogden. They brought us um, coaching instructors. 
so that we could then train our volunteers how to coach curling so that they could bring in more members. They brought out officiating instructors so that we could then train those new curlers how to officiate the sport. And they started, you know, slowly organizing local events, officiating them themselves. Then I would pick the the group of volunteers that were most committed and I would take them traveling with me to national and international level events, which I, it gives me chills even just thinking about it, the level of commitment that these people put in for four years um, and then seeing them stick with me for those entire four years and end up in leadership positions in the Olympic Games officiating curling. It was incredible. That is so cool. I love that story. You know, we've we've had a couple of people on the podcast associated with curling. We had Robert and Silvana Richardson. Lovely people. Yeah. They was like talking to my grandparents, you know. It was just really, really cool uh, to talk with them. And then we had Mike Caldwell, who's now the mayor of Ogden, uh, that was uh, worked on the ice sheet up there as well. So it's been fun having a couple of uh, people on to talk about the sport of curling. But I had no idea that you had this pool of volunteers that worked with you for four years who just gradually learned and learned and then eventually were able to participate as officiators uh, or officials in the technical officials in the, in during the games. I think that's amazing. It was, it was incredible. And I think about it now and I look back at, at the level of commitment those people gave um, to be a part of it. And it, and it was quite the experience. I mean, but how could you know when you were starting off, that you were going to get to that level and you were going to have that experience. They had to sacrifice right up front their time and effort and, and they stuck with it. It was, it was amazing. Tell me a little bit about the transition that you went through from establishing the foundation of curling here in the state of Utah, along with planning the event itself to then having to, you know, work with the venue team because you kind of are working in your function and then you kind of move on and you're all working as a, as a venue team uh, as you get close to games time. So what was that like? It's, it's really fun to think about how that all developed and how it happened. Um, cause we, cause we did go from this very small group of people in the curling club um, learning how to curl. And we eventually started um, teaching bigger groups of people Um and at some point, that core group of people, we would then have um, slock venue teams come out and try curling. And they did it as team building events for their um, just other venues. So like a figure skating venue would come and do a team building event to do curling because it is really quite the um, experience if you if you come out and learn how to curl. It's it's a fun team building event. Um, but I would say. It, it, it happened slowly and it ramped up um, at just the right pace because we had several test events prior to the Olympic Games that we hosted at the Ogden Ice Sheet. So um, once we started doing some of these smaller events and then ramping up to the test events and then getting into um, the final test event phase, we started to have um, a bigger sense of venue management and who was going to be there and, and be good at managing that venue. 
Um, I will say, um, I don't know for what reason, maybe it could have been me, who knows? Um, we had several ven venue managers that we went through, um, through those, uh, last couple years, but we ended up with a fantastic, amazing, um, venue team there. And I, I think that we worked flawlessly together to put on an event that lasted over 12 days. We were one of the venues that, um, we were fully operational, one of the longest, um, of the games period, just because we had to do an entire round Robin and then a semifinal final event. So curling was, um, throughout most of the games period we were we were running and we were operational and not only operational through a large duration of the games period but also the days could be long because you have you could have several sessions a day uh, as opposed to for example uh, an outdoor venue a ski venue where you're limited to daylight hours and it, and it might be going on for you know, six or seven hours during the day. But uh, for a venue like curling, you had you had matches going on all the time. That's correct. Yeah, we had um, a men's competition and a women's competition. And yeah, it was it was it was a long period of time. But every single moment, I think by the end of that um, period, we we were bonded as a team. And I think we worked pretty flawlessly to get through that. during the test events was there anything that that you learned it's like oh that didn't work let's try that differently or you know what actually that plan worked out just as we anticipated i think the biggest thing i learned through the test event phase we we knew the venue was going to work great um we, we were training our volunteers i think that was a big thing um but what happened um to me and, and our group was that um, somewhere along the line, I ended up um, starting a family. And our first uh, test event, I was due just prior to that event. So I had done all this planning and we were completely prepared to do this event. And it just so happened that um, I had a real struggle through the pregnancy. My son was born and I was unable to do a lot of the planning in that critical phase um, just before the test event. The test event was in March. I had the baby in January. So I ended up getting ill right after and had to have um, someone take over for me and, and lead us into that event. So, um, it was really a good learning experience on relying on those around you and being able to trust um, those people. So it turns out that um, Richard Morrell, who is our, our budget uh, finance person, who would sit down with me every day, oh, we need to buy this. We need, he knew the most about the event and he was willing and able to take on a little bit more and um, help us get through that process of me being sick. So I think what I really learned through that is that it's not about just one person. It's about that team and how everyone is, is trained well and works well together and willing to pick up the slack in places where, you know, if something should happen, um, somebody has your back. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, having a family in the middle of preparing for games 
that's challenging on a number of levels. <laughs> uh, I I know our daughter, our fourth child was born in 2001. And for my wife, her memories of the games are mixed. Or her emotions are mixed. She was super excited the games were here at the same time. She's like, but you were gone all the time. <laughs> I hardly ever saw you. Uh, so that's a big challenge. Number two, I really like the little shout out to the finance team because in these events, oftentimes the finance guys are often seen as the bad guys. Like, oh, they're just the people that say no to everything. <laughs> we don't have the money. No, 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 no. And it's so nice to hear someone say that a finance person actually stepped in and helped and, uh, and assumed some additional responsibilities. So I thought those two things were awesome that you just talked about there. I'm curious what a day in the life was like for you during the games. It was interesting. And I, again, look back and I say, gosh, how did we do that? But we did it. And we did it again because, um, one, we had to, um, but, um, but two, it was, we had this, this group of fantastic people around. So everyone can give and take. And, um, and I, I felt like if I had to leave the venue, I could leave because somebody had me covered. Um, being there for 12 days, I had a hotel room in Ogden and, um, I stayed there often because driving the 40 minutes home late at night and then 40 minutes back early in the morning was unsafe. And so there were times I just had to lay my head down and go to sleep. So, but I also needed and crave, I had to see my son, you know, so I had to get back and, and see him. So there was um, all those emotions going around. And I think I'm getting teary eyed even thinking about it because it was um, it was amazing that I had my mom and dad come down for the full two weeks and and they watched him. My whole family stayed at my house. My husband was able to help and go back and forth. He actually was like my number one volunteer on venue. But I think some of the the most striking memories I have is um before the games. So he was two years old at the games. Um, we had our first Testament two years, um, prior when he was born, I, um, ended up with an infection after the birth and, um, a really hard recovery. I was in bed for a while and, you know, trying to do the planning from home on the computer, but, you know, going back and forth and just, just trying to, to be there for everyone. Um, but then after that event was over, we were just carrying on. So we had to go to, um, the world championships in Scotland and I was taking a team of people in order to get them trained as officials so that they can continue that training and be officials at the Olympic games in 2002. So this was 2000. Um, and in order to do that, I had to bring my husband and bring my child who was breastfeeding. And, and then I had to present at the world curling federation meetings, all of the plans. So I had to be in meetings behind closed doors at times. My husband was wonderful to, you know, just take the baby and who would not take a bottle at the time. I don't understand this. This kid is very stubborn. He's 21 now. He's stubborn to this day, but he would not take a bottle. So my poor husband would be, you know, just try and put the earphones on and just put him in the baby Bjorn and, and walk around town trying to 
get this baby to stop screaming until I could get out of a meeting and actually feed him. So those are the memories I think that stick in my head. Um, and the, and the memories of me being at that first test event in 2000 and I'm about to go out to, um, open up the national event. I have to give a speech on the ice and I'm in the back room breastfeeding the, you know, because this baby needs to eat at this moment, hand him over to my mom and go out and give my speech. I mean, those were the, the balancing act of being a mom at a young age, um, with a pretty stubborn baby. <laughs> um, but that kid at three months old had already, already had his passport and was, was running around to places like Scotland. <laughs> That's yeah, That is, that is pretty awesome. Hey, you remember that trip we took to Scotland? Mom, I was three months old. Well, right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> We've had several people come on and said that their spouses or their, their parents or grandparents even volunteered and worked the games. And I think that just sounds so awesome to be able to volunteer with your, or work with your spouse, being a volunteer and, and then having all of your family there to support you. I think that sounds really, really awesome. It was amazing. And I, I am so thankful to this day that they were all there for me to allow me to continue doing that because it was one of those things. It was like, being an athlete, you know, I was doing my thing. I was doing my sport and they were the team around me helping me and allowing me to do that. You said being an athlete and that actually raised a question in my mind. You know, what were some of those things that you learned as an athlete that you applied in the work that you were doing in the Salt Lake organizing committee that allowed you really to deliver uh, an excellent event? I think the biggest thing in sport um, for me is to always work hard. Um, and, and, and that carried over, um, and I know it sounds weird to say, but failures, um, and learning for, from, and listening to, um, just even small things that go wrong though, that's that you can carry forward and do better next time. Um, that, that persistence and being able to, um, take a bad situation and, and bring it into a good one. Um, post games, I, um, I ended up working for a nonprofit here in park city called the youth sports Alliance. It was, um, organized out of the games up here, um, to help kids get involved in winter sport. Um, I wasn't part of the group that organized it, but I took it over eight years after the games. And, um, one of the things that I learned, you know, about myself in being an athlete and going through some of the experiences that I have in, um, had in business and what I've learned from athletics is we put together an acronym called sport S P O R T. Um, and, and we named those things. So sportsmanship, so being a part of a team. And I've, I think I've mentioned teamwork a million times in this interview already, but I think surrounding yourself with people that lift you up, um, perseverance. So learning from those fail failures, optimism, always looking towards, you know, something that's going to go right. Um, respect for those around you, um, and teamwork. Yeah. So the, we, we put that, um, acronym together and 
I, I think a, a more mature um, reflection of of me and what I've learned from my experiences as an athlete and then working outside of um, sport organizing an event for athletes. I love the acronym SPORT. Yeah. That's a great one. Um, I'm curious, as you were planning and preparing for the games and you have this acronym in the back of your mind now, mm-hmm. looking back on it, was there one element of those that was more difficult than the others? So you have the sportsmanship, the perseverance, the optimism, the respect, and the teamwork. Or did they all just come, I don't want to say easily, but maybe naturally? Um, I I don't know that. Okay, so as a little girl, I'm not sure where to take this, but um, as a little girl, I was jumping up and down off the couch and my mom said, Oh my goodness. Um, we've got to do something with this kid. We need to put her in a program. And so she chose gymnastics. And so then I was flipping around on, um, the balance beam and the bars and the floor. And I found this love in myself of sport and gymnastics. And I, I feel like I've, I've carried, uh, I've learned so many lessons from that sport, but I've carried that with me, um, in my life through the work that I do. And I've tried to, even though I can't flip around on the beam anymore, I, I try to express myself in other ways in the work that I do. So yes, I, I, I do think that's developed over time and it's something that those skills I, I will always carry, carry with me. So I know I've been totally going out of order here. I'm like <laughs> flipping things all over the place, but that's okay. I mean, this is just a normal thing. You know, it's not a, we don't have to stick to schedules or whatever. So I, I do want to give you an opportunity to reflect on any of the stories that you've jotted down on a list, either mentally or on a piece of paper or on a computer, uh, before we wrap it up with a goosebump moment. Normally we wrap up with the lessons learned, but you've covered a lot of that already. And you're welcome to say anything else you want to about that. But, but uh, what else do you have on your list of memories that you want to get on the record before we conclude? I mean, I would say there's, there's so many memories that I have and I've, um, I've kept with me close to my heart. Um, most of them are around the people that I was able to, um, be with and learn from. I would say, um, some of those people like Kathy Priestner Allinger, I haven't mentioned her name yet. And I meant to way earlier in this interview because she is, a huge mentor for me. And she was an Olympic speed skater and just an amazing athlete, but she brought this sense of poise and calm to her work that just trickled down into our whole sports department. And I learned so much from her, not only as an employee, but then, um, later on when I became a leader, um, a manager, a director that, um, just, how you treat people, how you deal with people, how you build them up, how you have confidence in them also helps them create that in themselves. And, um, so I just, I just feel so deeply grateful to have had such great leadership, um, in her and others. I mean, so many others as well. I, I, you know, I would shout out to Nick Thomas as well in the same regard, another Olympic athlete, 
great speed skater, but he also brought that into his leadership. Um, we're still great friends today and, um, continue to keep in touch, um, with so many of these people. I, I think, um, other memories that just, I didn't realize at the time, but, um, the amount of confidence that the world curling Federation had in me and specifically Roy Sinclair, who, um, was the president of the world curling Federation and, um, my technical delegate for curling. It's unbelievable how much confidence he had in me, some 27 year old kid that he was like, yeah, we want Amy to organize our event. And so without him having said that, I wouldn't have been in the position that I was in, no matter how qualified it was. He, he was the one that was pushing to have me there. And I would say, you know, he, he was a great friend through that whole process. Um, and almost a grandfather like figure. And, um, so I, I feel like I had such a great group of people around me, mentors and friends. So I think those are some of the, the biggest memories that I carry with me. Um, some of the unexpected things, which was kind of fun. So, um, tickets were scarce. So people bought tickets. Um, and I haven't mentioned this, but I think, um, we didn't know if people were going to buy tickets because we had September 11th happen just prior to the games in 2002. So with that big of a security breach, we were kind of wondering what was going to happen to our games. And to have a, you know, a sold out crowd, people are still coming, um, a higher level security happening, um, which was, was fine with all of us, but we were, we were just glad that, you know, the events were going to go on and we were going to have people come there and watch. So tickets were gone and they were scarce. So we didn't think that we'd be able to watch anything. Well, it, it turns out, you know, they reserve a number of sponsor tickets. They reserve a number of, inter, you know, for the International Federation, for television and whoever and whatnot. So it turns out there there was some tickets available to certain events. And if we could get off and run over, we could see some pretty amazing things. So I ended up being able to get to a short track uh, speed skating event and see some amazing things. I ended up being able to get to the opening and closing ceremonies. And I can't remember if it was the opening or closing because, you know, some of the details are a little fuzzy. Um, and we didn't have phones that had, you know, camera capabilities. So you couldn't capture every moment in a selfie. It was, um, a pagers and, and, you know, just very, a non-technical phones. So I have some pictures that had to be developed, but I don't think I was even able to take a camera into the opening and closing ceremonies where I was. So I was given a ticket from the world curling Federation and the president invited me to be with him who we've been talking about Roy Sinclair, who was an old friend now. And, um, he had me as his guest. I, I get into the facility and they lock everything down. I don't know why they locked everything down. They lock everything down. Well, then they're like, everybody get in your seats. So we, I sit in my seat and I get all comfy and, um, I'm looking around, they're getting ready to start, um, the ceremony and all these security cards guards come in, they file down, they walk over right in front of me, can't see anything. 
And there's this, I noticed this kind of piece of glass that's, that's behind them. And they escort in the president and the first lady. They sit right in front of me. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> well, okay, this is a really good seat. I don't know how much of the opening ceremonies I saw, but I did kind of like take note of me being in this really amazing position. Yeah, I, I think that's probably, yes, close to the best seat in the house. If you're sitting there right in front of uh, the president and the first lady, that's pretty amazing. That would be the opening ceremony. I don't think they came to the closing. So I would imagine it's the opening ceremony, but that is awesome. Is that your goosebump moment or is there another moment that is kind of your feel good? You've given us so many good feel good moments already. Yeah. I kind of feel silly asking the question, but is there one goosebump moment for you that just really stands out? Well, I would say um, on my on my venue, um, we had um, a really good competition and things went really well. Um, the women's competition um, in the end, it was um, the Great Britain team won with the very last stone going in to score one point because they were tied in the last end. And to see the look on that skip's face. And I mean, it was it was a, just a look of joy and a look of relief and a look of um you know, I did this for my country and just her whole life. Um, so some of those athlete moments where you see just all that hard work paying off, um, it had been Great Britain's first Winter Olympic gold uh, in 18 years, I think, something like that. And so she was it was incredible. Well, it sounds incredible. And I, and I would imagine that moment resonates for you, particularly as an athlete. Right. You know what it feels like. Uh, to be there at the pinnacle and and you can appreciate the emotions that someone is feeling at that particular point in time. Uh, so I really appreciate you mentioning that. Uh, is there anything else on your list, Amy, that we that we didn't get to yet? I don't think so. I think um, I, I, it was such a wonderful snapshot moment in time for me. I mean, it was five years from, I went from uh, 27, a really young kid to a 32 year old mom. So I grew, I grew up in the games. Um, I, um, I learned so much and so much about such amazing people. Um, and I'll forever keep those memories in my heart. Uh, like so many of us uh, have and are coming on sharing those memories on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to come share those. Before we wrap up, though, um, why don't you just give us a little bit more insight as to what you've been doing since those games ended? I know you're working with Chris Crowley now and you mentioned that you were doing work for a nonprofit. What was your journey post lock uh, like for you and um, what are you currently working on aside from the COVID stuff? So um, I started my own uh, consulting company, Pressed Power LLC, and uh, started off writing plans for um, Italy. And my assistant, Lisa Schanenberg, who was also a great friend, and I, I, I'm a miss if I haven't mentioned her already, and you should get her on your podcast. Um, she went out there and organized those games. Um, so I wrote the, um, the plan for them for sport, and then she fulfilled them and organized them. I started out writing, um, 
the plan for Vancouver and there are so many qualified uh, curling administrators in Canada because they host so many events that they went ahead and hired um, somebody there. And I, in the meantime, was um, starting my family. So I had my two-year-old and uh, three years later had my daughter and another two years later had my second son. So my kids are now 21, um, 18 and 16. And um, while raising them, I've just continued to work on small um, event management jobs. So I've done some things for the tour of Utah. Um, I helped a friend at some adventure races. Um, there's um, so many little events that I've organized up at Park City Mountain Resort with Karen Corfanta, who is amazing. Um, she was our Park City sport manager, her and Molly. So I've done a lot of events, skiing events up there with them, including 2019 world championships. I became her person to deal with the broadcast after my experience with doing that in the game. So, um, when they would come in and have something filmed, I'd come in and help liaise with the, the broadcast group. And, um, I've been enjoying raising my kids. I've, I'm feeling I'm at the, the final moments of uh, being able to help them in their lives. I've got that 16 year old and then we'll have an empty nest in a couple of years. So um, yeah, I look forward to doing many more little event management projects. And I, I think filtering into this thing and helping Chris with the vaccination clinic makes me think that um, it doesn't have to be just about sport. It can be that um, type of experience, the event management experience can move to other things in life. And I, I, I'm really enjoying being a part of a solution. Well, we appreciate all the work that you're doing there. Amy, it's been a pleasure to have you on. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing to help events or the COVID-19 pandemic, or they just want to swap 2002 stories. Mm -hmm. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn and I also have an email address. They can email me at prestpower, P-R-E-S-T-P-O-W-E-R at gmail.com. All right. Fantastic. Amy, I really appreciate you taking the time. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Amy, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.